0: Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa.
1: Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing actually good. Yeah. (laughs) Your face was a little confusing there. Um, (laughs) Listeners, it was very confusing. I was thinking, like,
0: is there anything... That is but you were thinking noteworthy. optimistically. Yeah, no, nothing really, nothing bad that is of note. So yeah, I'm doing good. The only thing I will say that will oh, no. surprise no one is that I can't believe it's the middle of November oh, and I can't believe it's still 85 freaking degrees outside.
1: <laughs> it was 88 this afternoon on my way home and I thought I was going to lose my mind and I was like, this, this isn't okay. Yeah. It's not okay. Okay. It's not okay. Fight back. It's not okay.
0: It has been really nice, though, like before this. That's the thing with Florida. Like, it's always such a, like, you get faked out with the weather this time of year. Totally. Because last week, it was absolutely gorgeous. It was in the 50s in the morning, nice and cool and crisp, and really didn't get like above 70 a couple of days mm-hmm. last week, and it was just beautiful. And now this week, we're back to like, it might as well be August. It feels so hot again.
1: It truly is. Yeah, there it's it's a total swing there and I hate it. I freaking hate it. <laughs> and I want to go back to last week and hopefully we will. Um, but yeah, and then Mandy, we saw each other this past weekend because we were involved in the uh, vigil for uh, Vladik Hassel. Um, we shared a story last week. Thank you guys so much for listening and sharing his poster and sharing the story. Um, and we are gearing up for this Tuesday. We're meeting with uh, Vladik's sister Bethany for World Kindness Day. We're going to be given out, giving out bags to unhoused members of the community. Some that. Vladik actually worked with in that area that he really reached out to, and so we're giving away some um, essentials, deodorants, toothbrushes, stuff like that, and a little information about Vladik in each bag. And so, thank you for those who have donated. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Me too. Yeah, we've actually been involved in so much really cool stuff lately. I've found yeah.
0: myself often being like, what What even is my life right now? Like, I just feel very happy and very proud of all the things that we have been doing lately. So, yeah,
1: great job, Melissa. Hey, great job, Mandy. <laughs> um and great job listeners. Thank you so much for helping us uh, you know, get some of this stuff going. And it's November. It's thankful month. Is it that is. What it's
0: called. So, it's perfect. Yeah. So, this is not all for no reason. We're we're talking about all these wonderful things that we're thankful for because
1: it is, in fact, It's appropriate November. for once. <laughs> yeah. No, but thank you, guys. I was thinking this earlier today. We did the name change of the show earlier in the year, January 1st, actually. And um, we've been able to do so many other things with this and work with families and stuff. And I know that's, like, a change that's not always easy for people. But we really, really appreciate it. And that's probably one of the things I'm most thankful for this year. Me, too. Is, like, Having the ability to be able to do that, yeah, it's been awesome.
0: It was a little scary, so scary, changing the name of the podcast. And I know we even did get like not too much, but we got a little bit of pushback. Just a just a few people were a little uncomfortable and didn't fully understand exactly why we were doing it. But I think we did a good job of explaining that we wanted to kind of go a different direction. And I feel like we actually have done that this year. So I'm very happy. Like you said, I'm very happy with the outcome of
1: kind of just everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Okay. <laughs> so thank you guys very, very, very much. Great month to be able to say this. We're always thankful, but I just really had that moment today where I was like, wow, this is really cool that yeah. we've been able to do this. And so many people have been a part of it, which is makes it even more amazing. Yeah,
0: it's amazing. All right. So we have quite a story to get into this Whoa. week. Yeah. Um, we're going outside of the United States. It's not something we do super often on the podcast, but I feel like every time we do, it's always a very very crazy story. Yes, and and no exception, no exception for sure. In the early hours of July eighth, two thousand ten, just as the sun was starting to rise on a cool winter morning in New Zealand, <laughs> it always trips me up that they have flip flop seasons. <laughs>
1: like, that it's Wait, July, and it's winter. Yes, you knew that, oh, right? Flip- yeah, but you said flip flop season, oh. and I was like, oh, I well, meant the whole year oh. is flip flop season here, <laughs> mean, like. Footwear. I got it. I got it now. Yes.
0: Flopped (laughs) seasons. Perfect. So it's winter in July in 2010 in New Zealand and a mysterious and unsettling sequence of events unfolded. Shortly after 7 a.m. on July 8th, a local man named David was passing by a neighbor's driveway when he noticed a very eerie sight. His neighbor Scott's truck was idling a few meters from the road with the headlights on. As David continued forward, he caught a glimpse of Scott's feet on the ground, so he stopped his car to see what was going on. What he discovered sent shivers down his spine. Scott lay lifeless in the front of the truck with his arms outstretched and his feet facing the road. A pool of blood was surrounding his lifeless body. Scott's parked truck was still running and the driver's side door had been left open. David, this neighbor who is now in a state of shock, ran over to Scott and checked for a pulse, but there was none. At 7.08 a.m., David dialed the emergency number 111. His voice was trembling as he reported that his neighbor was hurt and there really was little hope for his survival. David reported that he believed Scott's throat had been cut as he had observed a sizable wound in that area as well as the presence of a large amount of blood. Scott Guy was a local farmer who had grown up on his family's farm called Beerburn. Upon finding his body, David reached out to another neighboring farmer who, upon arriving, confirmed that Scott was indeed dead. Then, at 7.16 a.m., the neighbors made a call to Scott's brother-in-law, Ewan McDonald, to let him know what had happened. Somebody had killed
1: Scott. Scott Graham Guy was born on December 21, 1978, to parents Brian and Joe, He was the second of four children with an older sister, a younger sister, and a younger brother. Scott's upbringing centered around the family farm, Beerburn. Described as outgoing and gregarious by his mother, Joe, Scott had a deep affection for animals and people. He embodied the essence of what some people would call a real farm boy. During his teenage years, Scott forged a friendship with Ewan McDonald, another teenager who worked at Beerburn. Ewan was from Fieldling and his lifelong aspiration was to become a farmer. As a teenager, he occasionally worked at the family farm. At the age of 16, Brian offered him full time work at the farm, so he dropped out of school and he began working. Ewan never really left the farm after that. Scott's father, Brian, thinks that Ewan took the job because he really had a thing for Scott's sister, Anna, who he did eventually start dating. Ewan and Scott became close friends, and they really got along well together. They played on the same rugby team, and they liked to surf and hunt for possums together. In 2001, Ewan married Scott's sister, Anna, and Scott was the best man at their wedding. After the wedding, Ewan continued working on the farm. He kept his head down and thought he was being molded into the farmer that Brian wanted him to be. Ewan and Anna eventually had four kids, and they often talked about things they could do to provide a more secure upbringing for them.
0: Meanwhile, Scott went to university to study agriculture for a while, and after that, he went to work on a farm in Australia. In 2003, he returned to New Zealand and moved back to his family's farm. Later in 2003, Fate brought Scott and his future wife together at a bar in New Zealand where Scott was celebrating after competing in a rodeo. The special woman was named Kylie, and the two of them really hit it off. Kylie later said that Scott was one in a million, and they couldn't be apart from each other from the moment they met. She said he was the most amazing husband and partner, and they got married in 2005. Kylie then moved to Beerburn to be with Scott. Scott continued working on the farm, but things weren't always very smooth between him and his brother-in-law, Ewan. They just had different personalities where Scott was focused on the big picture and Ewan was more task oriented. Anna described Ewan as being a perfectionist and she later said that anytime Ewan and Scott had an issue that they needed to work out, it was always she who ended up playing the middleman because the two men weren't good at communicating with each other. Ewan always felt that the workload around the farm wasn't split evenly between himself and Scott. And he took notice that Scott seemed to have a lot more free time, whereas Ewan was spending a lot more hours working on the farm. As a result of this, Ewan often took credit for any awards that the farm won, but this actually rubbed Brian and the rest of the family the wrong way because they believed that the success of the farm wasn't just because of Ewan, but it was also because of everyone in the family that worked on the farm, as well as all the staff, which included Ewan.
1: In 2006, Brian and Joe decided it was time to start thinking about retirement, and they started stepping back from the day-to-day farm operations. Brian and Joe maintained 80% stake in the farm business, while each of their kids, Scott and Anna, and their respective spouses, each got 10%. Scott and Ewan both felt like they should become the boss, so Brian gave them each their own areas to manage. Ewan was in charge of dairy, while Scott handled crops and calf rearing. Both of them earned a salary of about $100,000 per year as farm managers. A couple of years later in 2008, Scott and Kylie welcomed a son and Scott became a very adoring father. He loved his family really more than anything, and he would often leave work early to go home and spend time with them. This eventually started to upset Ewan due to this imbalanced workload and the perception that Scott wasn't doing as much work as Ewan was. To make matters worse, Ewan and Anna had four kids together that Ewan barely saw because he was working so much. Meanwhile, Brian and Joe decided it was time for them to move into a different house located off the farm. They offered to sell their house on the farm to Ewan and Anna, who accepted the offer and they moved in. As you might expect, Scott didn't like that he wasn't offered the house. He was upset, which his mother, Joe, assumed was because it's, you know, Scott's childhood home. Of course, it's also a sister Anna's childhood home, but I can see how that could cause problems right. if one sibling is offered it and the other isn't.
0: This kind of reminds me, honestly, like when my dad passed away, there was a little bit of this between my sister and I. Not, It didn't get like ugly, but it right. is kind of tricky to figure out stuff like what to do with specific like physical assets, like my dad's car. Yeah. Of course, both of us wanted it at the time. You know, we were both like, mm-hmm. I want the car. Like it was, it was his car. So it was such a special thing. And it's like- how do you decide who is entitled to have it, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and neither we both agreed that like, we didn't want to just sell the car and split the money, like somebody wanted the actual car. So it's like kind of one of those things I kind of feel for Scott in that situation, just being like, I want the house, but like, okay, like, but what makes you entitled to the house and not your sister kind of thing. So definitely just one of those family family dynamics. Yeah.
1: mm -hmm. So Scott and Kylie ended up building their own home on the farm, just under a mile away from Ewan and Anna. This home ended up being about 2,700 square feet with four bedrooms and two bathrooms, and it sat on five acres.
0: In June of 2008, Scott asked to have a shareholder meeting, and he also set the agenda for that meeting. During the meeting, he criticized how the family farm was being run, and he brought up the idea of himself inheriting this farm. His parents, Brian and Joe, told him that he wasn't going to simply just inherit the farm, and there was really no reason for him to have ever thought that that would be the case. Brian pointed out that he himself hadn't even inherited the farm. Instead, he had to buy it from his own father, and he said that if Scott wanted to own the farm one day, he would have to do the same thing. Scott also said really hurtful things to his sister, Anna, and questioned why she even had a share in the farm when she never worked a day in her life on the farm. She and Ewan were, of course, in disbelief at the way that Scott, you know, was treating them. And, of course, I'm sure Anna did do some things on the farm. After this tense meeting, things seemed to improve over the next year and everybody was getting along pretty well, but at the same time, strange things started happening at Scott and Kylie's property. In 2008, an old house that was sitting on a trailer waiting to be moved off the property was burned down, and in January of 2009, the new house that Scott and Kylie were building was vandalized and this left significant damage. The vandals broke windows, walls, and plumbing, and they also spray-painted really offensive words and phrases on the side of the house. Although this act of vandalism was really disturbing, Scott and Kylie wrote it off as a careless act since they didn't have any known enemies or problems with anyone. At the time this vandalism happened, they weren't actually living in the home because it was still being built. So they kind of were thinking, you know, no harm, no foul. Nobody was hurt. This was just like a mischievous thing. This vandalism incident remained
1: unsolved for a very long time. In early 2010, Scott and Kylie learned that they were expecting their second son. By this time, tensions between Scott and Ewan had eased up, and they even attended a conference out of town together. Scott spoke with Kylie multiple times when he was on this trip, and he told her he was having a good time and things were really going well. When Scott returned from the trip, he started talking about an idea he had to build a water park on a portion of the farm that they didn't use for farming. According to Scott's dad, Brian, they returned from the conference with this idea that either Ewan or Scott might consider managing a different farm because Beer was struggling to support the salaries of three families, and those were Brian and Joe, Scott and Kylie and their kids, and Anna and Ewan and their kids. Multiple options were considered to bring in more money, including creating this like recreational lake which scott was in favor of as well as share milking or leasing a farm and these would be some potential ways to generate income so no one necessarily had to leave the farm ewan told his wife that he was concerned that the farm couldn't sustain three incomes and felt that they needed to explore other options but neither one of them wanted to leave they wanted to stay and they wanted to run the dairy unit so Anna later talked the situation over with her mom, who reassured her that really everything was fine and nothing would change. And we still have more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Mandy, there's so much to be thankful for this year. Things like our dear listeners, Love is Blind, and Honey Love, of course. If you're looking for shapewear that not only works, but it's also comfortable, look no further than Honey Love. We've had Honey Love as a sponsor for over a year now, and I think I might love it now even more than I did at first. After trying several different types of shapewear, including one I was influenced to buy on the old Clock app, I can honestly say Honey Love is number one in my book, and it will be in yours too.
0: Honeylove knows you want shapewear that actually works. If you're going to spend your hard-earned dollars on shapewear, that's the least it can really do. But Honeylove doesn't stop there. Not in this economy. Honeylove gives you more bang for your buck by actually being comfortable. Honeylove's best-selling Superpower Short is a great example of comfort plus amazing shapewear. The Superpower Short has targeted compression technology that gives you more support where you need it and less compression where you don't. Plus, their signature X targets and sculpts your midsection without making you feel like one of the clearly unhappy models in an old Renaissance painting. You know the ones
1: I'm talking about. There's so much to be thankful for when it comes to Honey Love, but my favorite, favorite thing is that the shapewear includes flexible boning that's hidden in the side seams, which means no rolling up or down while you're wearing it. Honey Love designed their shapewear, bras, and loungewear with you in mind. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save up to fifty percent
0: off site wide at HoneyLove.com/moms20 this month only. Inventory is limited and the sale ends soon, so don't miss their best deals of the year. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. It's time to ditch the underwire for good, thanks to Honeylove. Did you know the average person sweats about one liter a day? One liter, and that's okay. Sweating is literally part of being human, but just because we sweat doesn't mean we want to stink. That's why Lumi deodorant is the only deodorant you need for all your sweaty parts, from pits to privates and even to your feet.
1: Mandy, you know how I feel about feet. And while I hate feet with a burning passion of a thousand suns, I also don't want them to stink. Lumi gets that and prides itself with being the whole body deodorant that's safe to use anywhere on your body, including places you don't think about until they're sweaty. I'm looking at you under boobs and belly buttons. I absolutely love Lumi and hate that I just found out about it last year. Mandy, I have a quick trivia question for you now. Did you know that 12 hours after a shower, the average person has an odor level of 6 out of 10? With Lumi, the average odor level was 0 out of 10. There's really just no comparison.
0: And that makes sense. Lumi was actually created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how normal BO was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. She created Lumi to help block odor all day and control odor for up to 72
1: hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping as a special offer for listeners new customers get $5 off Lumi's starter pack with our exclusive code and link and for a limited time returning customers can get $5 off their next purchase of $30 or more too. use code moms at lumideodorant.com l-u-m-e-d-e-o-d-o-r-a-n-t.com thank you Lumi for making this holiday season smell a whole lot better and now back to the episode
0: Before the break, we were getting into the dynamic between Scott Guy and his family. This is kind of a large family that, not very large, but they all live on one family farm.
1: They're working and living They're working kind of and living together, in very, very close. very
0: close quarters, yes. So he has his parents that are a part of this farm, and he's also got his sister and brother-in-law uh, who are living in another residence on the same family farm. So we've been talking about the events that have led up to Scott being found dead outside of his truck outside of the driveway of his home on the morning of July 8th, 2010. On that morning, Scott's day began with a cup of coffee and a little bit of time spent using his computer. Records show that he logged off at 4.41 a.m., just in time to head into the workshop behind Ewan McDonald's house, which is where he was expected to arrive at 4.50 a.m. for his milking duties. The drive to the workshop was only about one mile and only took about a minute or so to drive over. Sometime between 4.43 and 5 a.m., 31-year-old Scott drove down his driveway. It was pitch black outside, so he only had his truck's headlights on high beam to light the way. As Scott approached the end of his driveway, he noticed that the gate was shut, which he found kind of strange because he didn't remember himself or his wife Kylie closing it the night before. Scott stopped his truck and got out to open the gates, not knowing that this was a setup. An assailant emerged from the darkness and opened fire on Scott with a shotgun. Around two hours later, just after 7 a.m., the neighbor David that we mentioned earlier was driving past Scott's driveway when he came upon this shocking scene. When David saw the massive gunshot wound to Scott's throat, he thought that Scott's throat had actually just been cut, which is what he reported when he dialed the emergency number 111. After David called another neighbor to confirm that Scott was in fact dead, he reached out to Ewan to let him know what was going on. Upon hearing that his brother-in-law had been shot, Ewan seemed really skeptical, but after David reassured him that this was not a joke, Ewan rushed to the scene on his quad bike. When he arrived, the police were already there, and Ewan was told to keep his distance from Scott's body and to not get any closer than about six to seven meters. David noticed that Ewan seemed very distressed during this whole ordeal, At some point, while all of this commotion was going on outside at the gates, Kylie, who was Scott's wife, stepped out onto the doorstep to kind of investigate what was happening. Officers told her to stay where she was, and they said that there had been a serious accident. And Kylie did as she was told and went back inside the house.
1: Ewan made the call to his father-in-law, which was Scott's dad, Brian, at 721 that morning. Brian was at home when he got the news that something terrible had happened to Scott. Ewan was distressed, and he told Brian that he needed to get out there quickly. Brian assumed that Scott had been in some type of farm accident, and he wasn't sure if Ewan even knew exactly what happened or if Scott was alive or dead. When Brian arrived at the scene, he saw Ewan sitting off to the side on his quad bike. He appeared visibly distraught, and he told Brian that someone had killed Scott. After hearing this news that his son was dead, Brian was allowed to go up to the house and break the news to Kylie, who, by the way, was seven months pregnant at this time, which is just terrible. Oh my gosh, I cannot imagine. No. Brian also contacted his wife, Joe to let her know about their son, and he told Ewan to go home and to support his family. After speaking with the police, Brian and Kylie were allowed to leave. The family decided to meet up at Ewan and Anna's house, but since the driveway was cordoned off, they had to climb fences to get there. Ewan stayed behind at the farm to help organize things there. Which, another thing with this story is I've, I have very little knowledge of real farm and farm life, but my gosh, the farm doesn't stop. These people are up 4 o'clock in the morning, right. milking cows, cows like, have to get stops. milked. Yeah, and so like even there's literally been a murder on the property and they still have to get this stuff done just like life continues on the farm, I guess. Everyone in town really was so shocked about the news of Scott's murder. Multiple people who were interviewed by 3 News talked about what a likable guy Scott was and how hard it was to believe that anyone would want him dead. It ended up being determined that Scott died from a gunshot wound to the neck, which measured approximately 5 by 2 inches and extended from the left side of his chin to the right side of his voice box. The pathologist who performed the autopsy said that Scott likely died from his injury within seconds. There were over 250 shotgun pellets found in Scott's body with plastic shotgun wadding found in his throat. He also had pellet injuries on his left hand and forearm, possibly as a result of trying to shield his face. These injuries could have all been from one single shot, but it's possible there were multiple shots fired.
0: Melissa, do you know much about shotguns? All I know is the pellets. Like, it's not just a bullet. It goes and sprays. Well, there is, right? So I didn't know that there was, like, different types of, like, ammunition for shotguns. So there's, like... A slug, which is literally just a big giant bullet. Mm -hmm. And then you have like buckshot, which is used for hunting deer, and you have birdshot, which is used for hunting birds. I can't exactly tell which one they're talking about was used in this case i want right. to say but yeah it was definitely one of the ones where it's like has multiple things because that really confused me when they were saying they found 250 plus yeah. pellets inside of him and that could have all been from one shot so i had to go look up like how many of these pellets does one yeah, you know, what, what did would you one find? shot hold? I really couldn't find like anything like super conclusive, so that's why I was okay. kind of confused. I was asking you if you happen oh. to know.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a number there. Um, but I mean, two hundred fifty feels like a lot, even in one. I mean, yeah. especially in one bullet, even in a few, it seems like it would be a lot. So, it, it's awful either way. So there were no powder burns or contact wounds, which seemed to indicate that Scott was shot from several meters away. Also, I like that we're using meters in this episode since we're in the land of New Zealand. I like it's that awesome. we're using
0: it so casually as if either mm-hmm. one of us has any clue what the conversion is to American metrics.
1: <laughs> no, there's a great SNL sketch I'm going to send you after this. If anybody's watched it, Nate Bargatze he yeah. hosted last week. And it's so good, all about the metric system and everything, which sounds nerdy, but it's great. Back to the story. So Scott's pants were found to have traces of other unidentified DNA on them. And a firearm forensic specialist said they believe Scott had been shot twice, once to the neck and once again as he was falling or laying on the ground. They also said that one shot was fired from the right side of the nearby fence. An investigation
0: revealed that on the day of the shooting, it had been raining. Tire tracks were discovered in the mud at the crime scene, along with over 50 footprints. These footprints were observed in close proximity to Scott's body, as well as his truck, and also at the front gate, and they led towards an old shed located on Scott's property, which was often used to house puppies. Another set of footprints was found near the shed, and it appeared that somebody had climbed over the fence there and returned to the road from that area. Forensic analysis of these footprints showed that they likely came from a size 9 or 10 Proline W375 neoprene dive boot, or a similar type of footwear. There were eight impressions taken from the gate to the driveway that were determined to be from riding gloves. They also found an empty cigarette pack at the scene. The brand was Winfield Gold, and there was a sticker on this empty pack of cigarettes that indicated that these particular cigarettes had only been available since June 21st of that year. So they were – must have been like a relatively new thing. There were no shotgun shells found at the scene, but they did find a shotgun wad. And again, this is something I had to look up. I was like, what does that even mean? Yeah. So the shotgun wad is a plastic barrier that's found within the shell casing that separates the pellets we were talking about earlier from the gunpowder that actually sets off the shot. Got it. So it's just a little piece, basically from what I gathered, like it's just like a little tiny piece from inside of the shotgun shell is all they found. Some of Scott's personal belongings, including his iPod and his wallet, were recovered from the inside of his truck.
1: Many people were interviewed regarding Scott's murder, including his brother-in-law, Ewan, who was one of the first people on the scene. They learned that Ewan and Scott typically alternated who would open the workshop at 4.50 every morning. So on the night before Scott was shot, Ewan texted him to confirm that he would be on the early shift, and Scott said yes. Ewan said he woke up at 4.50 a.m. on the morning of the 8th and realized that Scott wasn't there yet, so he got ready to get the day started himself. Scott was often late for work, so Ewan really wasn't alarmed by him not being there yet. Ewan unlocked the shed and shut off the alarm at 5.02 that morning. He sent a text to Scott at 5.03, but he didn't get a reply. At 5.40 a.m., Ewan called Scott, but again, he got no answer. Ewan said he got a call from the neighbor about Scott being dead, and when he rushed over to the scene, the police were already there and told him not to get too close to Scott's body, but Ewan could see that Scott was dead. Furthermore, Ewan told police that he noticed that there were three chocolate lab puppies missing from the shed on Scott's property. These puppies were being sold for $700 each, and Ewan didn't notice that they were missing until he was let in the shed to feed the puppies on the day that Scott was killed. And so the family ends up putting up flyers for these missing puppies. Investigators spoke with other farm workers, including an assistant worker
0: that we're going to refer to as Derek. Derek was present at the farm on the morning of Scott's death. He had actually arrived at the farm and parked his car before Ewan arrived to unlock the shed that morning. And when they saw each other, they even commented about Scott not being there yet. Derek asked whether Ewan had tried to contact Scott and Ewan explained that he did call and got sent straight to voicemail. So Derek went about his routine at the milking shed and then he adjusted some of the fences and he had his breakfast. At some point between 7 and 7.30 that morning, Ewan called and told Derek that Scott had been involved in an accident. That's all he really said. But Derek didn't ask for any more details, and he also did not go to the crime scene. At some point between 4.40 and 4.50 a.m., another farm worker named Matthew arrived at the farm for his shift, which didn't start until 5 a.m. Matthew allegedly showed up a little bit early that morning because he wanted to impress Scott, who, as we said, was supposed to be there at 4.50. So Matthew was there, and he said that he saw Ewan leaving his home So this is all within, you know, the same farm. There's houses on the farm. Matthew has arrived at the farm for work. And so he has like a clear view of where Ewan's residence actually is. So at this time, shortly after 5 a.m., he sees Ewan leaving his home and said that at that time it looked like Ewan had just woken up. He watched as Ewan got the farm workshop key, unlocked the door, and even deactivated the alarm at 5.02 a.m. At that point... Matthew, Ewan, and Derek all began milking the cows, which is what they did every single morning. Matthew told investigators that he had noticed a car coming from the direction of Scott's driveway between 4.40 and 4.50 that morning, just as he was arriving at the farm for work. He said that shortly after 5 a.m., he saw another car leaving Scott's place. According to Matthew, when Ewan returned after learning of Scott's murder... He was visibly pale and he appeared legitimately shocked. The police did tell the public about these two vehicles of interest that I just mentioned, but nobody ever came forward with any tips and they never were able to identify the vehicles or the tracks they found at the scene. Four neighbors in the area told police what they saw and heard as well. The first neighbor said they heard two quick gunshots at about 5 a.m. and they assumed that it was just related to possum hunting, so they went back to sleep. Later on when this neighbor woke up, his roommate told him that they had actually heard three shots. So this, the original neighbor, thought maybe the first shot is what had woken him up, and then what he actually heard was the second and third shot. The second neighbor the police talked to said that they were woken up by a noise at 5 a.m., but they weren't sure what it was and that they quickly went back to sleep. Another neighbor heard what sounded like a gunshot, followed by the sound of a quad bike, and when she got up to look to see what was going on, she saw people riding bikes through the trees. Finally, another neighbor said that they also heard three consecutive gunshots, but they said they didn't hear anything or notice anything else after that.
1: On July 11th, police publicly stated that they were stumped and had limited leads into Scott's murder. The family pleaded for the shooter to come forward and to turn themselves in. On July 15th, police stopped drivers on the road around Field Link and questioned them to see if they could learn anything new. On July 21st, authorities revealed that there had been three puppies stolen from the farm, and they started to explore the possibility that Scott was shot in connection with the theft of these dogs. The puppies were never recovered, and investigators continued to look for other leads. Deep dives into possible criminal associations and extramarital affairs really turned up nothing. At some point, police found out about the vandalism incidents at Scott's property over the previous year, and they started to look into whether or not this could be related to his murder. By late July, a total of 37 police personnel were assigned to this case. They worked to interview a number of people, including burglars and known criminals in the area with this theory that Scott's murder was a burglary gone wrong. This really didn't fit though, because Scott's wallet and his iPod had also been left behind. Ewan was re-interviewed over the course of three days in which he discussed the competitive dynamic between himself and Scott, but he said the tensions that they once had were really behind them now. Ewan denied having any involvement in the arson or vandalism on Scott's property, He also agreed to take police on a tour of the farm, including the office where the firearms were stored. A shotgun was identified there, which really wasn't unusual to see on a farm. Many of the farm workers used it and had access to it, and ammo was found in a safe. Although the shotgun could not be excluded as a possible murder weapon, they also couldn't match it to anything at the crime scene because there were no spent shell casings found to compare to. Interestingly enough, part of the shotgun cartridge found in Scott's neck did match cartridges linked to Ewan and the ammo from the family farm's gun belt. The shotgun was found to have a small amount of blood inside the barrel, but there really wasn't enough for human DNA analysis, as there was no other blood on the gun. There was no confirmed human DNA found on the shotgun, and testing on the trigger showed mixed results that included Ewan, Scott, and others. Ewan was asked to provide a DNA sample, and he agreed. By August, and especially into September, progress really
0: started to slow down on the case, and in October, the police made a plea to the public for new tips. They did end up getting about 50 phone calls with leads to follow up on, and this included interviewing some people from Scott's Facebook friends list. Despite these new tips, there still weren't really any significant developments in the case, and the family continued to beg for anybody to come forward with information. In early 2011, police released photographs of the vandalism that we talked about earlier when somebody had spray painted very vulgar words on Scott and Kylie's new home. I can't even say Mm
1: -mm. what was
0: spray painted on the side. Melissa, I sent you a photo of it um, because, of course, that was part of the, you know, the police did take a photo and I sent it to you because I was like, what? <laughs> what
1: kind I of couldn't believe this it? spray paint on it was, the side <sighs> of someone's house? Yeah. There was no questioning that this was like not a happy, you know, <laughs> right. happy graffiti. It wasn't at all. It was yeah. quite vulgar and terrible. Yes.
0: So the police showed photos of this damage in hopes that it would bring in new tips. And it actually did. They were informed about a man named Callum Beau who worked on Beerburn and had handwriting that apparently resembled this graffiti.
1: I don't know how you can tell with graffiti, spray paint, somebody's handwriting.
0: So when I think of graffiti, though, I think of like almost artistic, like artwork. But what oh. this was, to me, was not artistic. It literally was just somebody spray painting with their own writing yeah that's true language. so it wasn't like because i feel like i agree with you that like how would you be able to tell if graffiti like was you don't something hold you a recognized? pen the way you hold a can you, you know don't what i mean you don't but even have you I'm not ever come on this. melissa haven't you ever spray painted like letters on something i feel like it still looks like your handwriting
1: true i just didn't think this through all the way i very rarely graffiti and when i do i like to do cursive i know, I know I you're not you're not very um what can i say yeah
0: <laughs> you're not a graffitier <laughs> eh, darn so when callum was questioned on april the third he did admit to vandalizing scott's home but he said that he actually did not act alone and the person that he acted with may or may not surprise everyone It was Scott's brother-in-law, Ewan. So Ewan was a decade older than this guy, Callum, but they actually had a history as friends, and they liked to go camping and hunting together. And they would also go on these, what they called secret night missions. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers here. And this started off as kind of an innocent thing, but eventually it turned rather menacing. I feel like that's putting it lightly. Very much so. So... For example, in 2007, Callum and Ewan were caught poaching deer from another farm. They would go and kill these deer. They would take the heads and back legs with them and leave the carcasses behind. After they got caught doing this, Ewan apologized to the owner of the farm and the owner of these deer. And he even, as a sign of good faith, returned several of the deer heads Not all, several. (laughs) So the police were not called. In August, Callum and Ewan wanted to get back at the farm owner that, I don't know why they wanted to get back at the farm owner. It seemed like they had, they were the ones who had done him wrong. They got off easy. Right. Like they had murdered his animals and taken their heads. I don't know why they wanted to get back at him, but they did. So they went back to this man's farm and they dumped about 16,000 liters of milk from the farm's main milk vat, which doesn't maybe sound like that big of a deal, Melissa, but that's an amount of spilled milk that's worth crying over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. But I'm thinking of it in terms of uh, Diet Cokes. And to me, that's eight thousand two liters of Diet Cokes. And that really hurts my heart. That's well, did a lot you do the liquid. math
0: on the finances of how much that would cost you? No, but you did. Go ahead. I did. Yeah. So... This amount of milk being spilled was worth over tens of thousands of dollars, which is like crazy to even think that one milk vat holds tens of thousands of dollars of milk. I need to get into the farming business. (laughs) You just said you couldn't do it two minutes ago. I could not. I could run the farm, but not work the farm. (laughs) Okay. So... In addition to these terrible acts of vandalism, if you want to call them that, Ewan and Callum also used a hammer to kill 19 of the same farmer's calves that were on the farm. Seven months later, the pair of them went back to the same farm again and set a 120 year old duck hunting lodge on fire and it ended up burning all the way to the ground i do feel like perhaps there's a little bit of information we don't know about um the backstory between ewan and callum and this particular farm owner but that's a lot to do to like one person so it seems like they must have had some history
1: yeah, it's not menacing if it's just one person that they're going after. It's, it's way, way wor- worse than that. That's wild yeah. and terrible. So Callum and Ewan had been involved in poaching activities together quite often, doing things like flying a helicopter to access public land and then wading through a river to get to a private property and then stealing deer from a neighboring farm. So if you're thinking that Callum seems like a likely suspect, you're wrong. He actually had an alibi for the time of Scott's murder. He was living in Queenstown at the time, which, as far as we can tell, is about a 15-hour drive from Scott's house. But even though Callum did have an alibi, hearing all these stories about things that he and Ewan did together did raise some concerns about Ewan and his potential as a suspect. Of course. Yeah. So three days after speaking with Callum, investigators brought Ewan back in for more questioning. So he initially continued to deny that he had any involvement in any of the crimes that Callum had implicated him in, but eventually he broke down and admitted to the acts of vandalism on Scott's property. Ewan said that his frustration with working these long hours while Scott took plenty of time off is really what led him to doing these spiteful things, but he insisted that he did not kill anyone. Back to what police are saying that happened in this 19 minutes. So after he takes the quad bike slash ATV, shoots him, cleans up, returns home, disarms an alarm, and goes to work, all while Matthew, who is his farm employee, waited for him at the workshop. So investigators thought it was suspicious that the alarm at the workshop was disabled at 5.02 a.m. because for two weeks leading up to that day, the alarm had been deactivated before 5 a.m., So Ewan ended up being charged with murder later that day, and he pleaded not guilty. He was also charged for the crimes that he had committed with Callum, but he would not be sentenced with that until the murder trial
0: was over. I just want to point out one thing, uh, and you'll see why I find this important Like as the story kind of goes on, but I think it was kind of... I don't know. I didn't like that they focused in on saying like, oh, for the two weeks leading up to this day, the alarm was deactivated before 5 a.m. But on this day, it was 5.02. And the reason I say that I don't think that's significant, in my opinion, which, as we all know, is not worth really anything because I'm (laughs) not professional at anything. I don't think that's really significant because on this particular day... It's already been established that they thought Scott was going to be opening up the shop and was going to be there at 450 and that Ewan woke up and realized Scott wasn't there and then quickly got ready and opened up the office and start, you know, went, went to go do that. So to me, it kind of makes sense that it was like a couple of minutes late that. Yeah,
1: I think it'd be weirder if it was at the exact time it always was. Right because this that that was the whole thing that he was running late or he didn't he knew he wasn't there and so he had to get up and rush and do it so of course it was a few minutes late
0: yeah so the day after ewan was arrested scott's dad brian spoke to the new zealand herald and acknowledged the rocky relationship between ewan and scott but he said that those issues were in the past and as far as he knew everything had really been resolved Brian spoke about how much Ewan's arrest had affected his wife, Anna, and their four kids, and just what a nightmare it was to explain that their father had been accused of killing their uncle. Brian further stated that the family couldn't imagine Ewan having anything to do with Scott's murder. They couldn't fathom it, and they just wanted to believe in his innocence, which, again, this is a whole family sharing an entire farm together. Ewan's wife Anna, this is her brother that's been murdered. Yeah. So the last thing that she's going to want to think is that my husband has killed my brother or same, you know, same thing oh my with gosh. Brian and Joe, you know, the parents, they're not thinking like our son-in-law has killed our son. It all just, it, you know, none of it really makes any sense logically. Brian, the father of the family, did say that he had a brief moment where he considered that Ewan had actually done it, but ultimately he dismissed this thought because Ewan seemed really genuine in his shock and disbelief over Scott's death, and he also hadn't really done anything weird to suggest that he would have any involvement. While Ewan was in jail, Anna went to visit numerous times, and she was just trying to get answers to all of the questions that she had. When she directly asked Ewan if he had anything to do with shooting her brother, Ewan once again denied having any involvement. He did admit to the vandalization, and he blamed that on his frustration with Scott's behavior. He said he was annoyed with Scott for always going home from work just whenever he wanted to. Eventually, in January of 2012, Anna told Ewan that their marriage was officially over. So back to the time of the murder... When Brian, who, as we've been saying, is Scott's father, learned that Scott had been shot, he wanted to go to the farm office himself to see if the shotgun was where he last left it. And it actually was. According to Brian, it didn't even look like the shotgun had been moved at all. The shotgun was actually hidden behind a cabinet in the office, and it was disassembled into three different parts. In the weeks leading up to the murder, the shotgun had actually been used on the farms many times to scare birds away. Although New Zealand law says that firearms have to be securely stored in a safe or a cabinet, and they also have to be rendered inoperable by removing a crucial component, which I think is probably the reason why it was in three parts that, that right. would like satisfy that requirement, the shotgun on the Beerburn farm was not actually locked up. Brian later admitted that he had lied to the police when he first told them that the shotgun was locked up, but he didn't mention that the shotgun was in three pieces behind a cabinet until after Ewan was arrested. Detectives said the footprints left behind at the crime scene came from a pair of dive boots that Ewan had purchased about six years earlier. Ewan used these boots on hunting trips, and the actual boots were never found, and of course the police think that that's because he disposed of them. His wife, Anna, later testified that the last time she saw the boots was before they moved in 2008. So this is two years before the murder. And she said at that time, one of the boots was falling apart and had cobwebs on it. So she threw it away. Honestly, I would believe this woman. um, She's going to be the one who's going to know if these boots
1: are still around the house or not. Absolutely. Yeah, that's like talk about women's intuition yes <laughs> uh, it goes beyond that but yes yeah, ask see that, the wife like, she's gonna know
0: does he own these boots did he ever own these boots and she'll tell you the whole story like she and did <laughs> she will tell you
1: when she tosses them out because they were terrible um so parts of the property where you and lived were excavated in a search for any evidence including those dive boots that left shoe prints at the scene also any shotgun shells the missing puppies and more But the searches didn't turn up any evidence related to Scott's murder. Meanwhile, Ewan's defense team started preparing for trial, and they began by combing through the case file and putting together a timeline based on what prosecutors were alleging happened. The earliest possible time that they found that Scott could have been shot was at 4.43 a.m., An undisputed fact was that just 19 minutes later, Ewan, who was back on his property and ready for work, shut off the alarm at the office at 5.02 a.m. So that's just 19 minutes in between those two times. So the defense tried to piece together a timeline that would show Ewan's involvement, but it really just wasn't possible. So one attorney said, quote, to this day, I have no idea how they actually think he did it, second by second. What time did he get up? How did he avoid Anna waking up? What time did he get there? Did he kill the puppies before or after? Why would he cycle back along the main road? Why weren't there any bike tracks? Tell me how he could do it. "End quote." So Anna testified that she didn't know what time Ewan woke up that day, but said he'd been getting up at about four fifty every morning. Investigators know that Scott was at home on his computer until four forty one that morning, which is when he logged off but it's unclear exactly what Scott did in those few minutes after that or exactly what time he left his house to go to work. The absolute earliest time he could have reached the end of his driveway would have been at 4.43 a.m., but it seems like that would be a little early for him to leave when he actually only had one minute to drive and had to be there at 4.50. Why would he stop using the computer at 4.41, immediately get in the car, and go without you know, spending a minute or two getting his things together to head out the door, maybe grabbing coffee, anything like well, that. I can like, tell you why. Because I like to be
0: early to everything. So to me, it doesn't seem that weird that you would leave your house at 4.43 when you had to be somewhere at 4.50.
1: But if he knows it only takes him one minute and he has to be Yeah, that's true. You're literally just driving down the driveway, basically. Yeah, he's not really – rushing at that point if he's got literally eight extra minutes so other issues with the theory that ewan shot scott were that no bike tracks were found at the scene and there was no sign of mud or water on ewan's bike that was in the garage the defense couldn't believe police weren't able to identify the two vehicles seen near scott's house that morning the road the farm was situated on wasn't the type of place you'd be unless you really had a reason to be there it's this small private road to access private properties. So, if you didn't know it existed, you wouldn't just find yourself there. Uh, Google Maps isn't taking you there. So, we still have more to get into with this story. After one last break, to hear a word from this week's sponsors. <laughs> There's a reason dogs are known as man's best friend. That's because they're not only adorable, but they're truly always there for us. And what better way to show your love for your favorite pup than with Nom Nom, the company that provides amazing meals filled with nutrient-packed recipes that are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists. Not only do they create real good food for dogs, they make it personalized to your dog based on things like their breed, age, and weight, and a number of other determining factors. Plus, it's delivered right to your door, so there's no need to make another stop at the pet store to feed your favorite
0: pet. Unlike other dog foods, I can actually see what foods I'm feeding my dogs when I'm giving them Nom Nom. With over 40 million meals already delivered to good dogs just like mine and yours, Nom Nom is a great way to help support your dog as he gives you his best each and every day.
1: We know how important real food is to real people, and honestly, it's really the same for dogs. With pup-pleasing favorites like chicken cuisine and beef mash, Nom Nom meals feature high-quality proteins and vegetables that are mixed with targeted vitamins and minerals that help provide essential nutrients to dogs' needs at every stage in life. My dog Remy is just three years in people years, and I hope he lives 30 more. And while that might not be possible, I can help him live a happy life with Nom Nom, which he absolutely loves.
0: Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trinom.com slash moms. Spelled com slash moms for 50% off.
1: trinom.com slash moms. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Mandy and I both have teenagers, and I'm sorry, Mandy, but it's really nice to have a friend here in the trenches with me. And while I benefit so much from being able to text her things like, Is it just my kid that hates me or is it maybe a full moon? Sometimes I need a little more. And while Mandy is wonderful, she's not a professional therapist. I know. I was surprised by that too. So when I need some extra assistance that Mandy can't provide, I'm thankful to have therapy. And if you're looking for the same, you should check out BetterHelp.
0: As an absolute non-therapist, I totally agree. And on top of just having teenagers or children in general, this time of year can be extra tough. Whether you're hosting your family for Thanksgiving or maybe grieving the loss of someone close to you, it's important to add something new and positive that can help you through some of those big feelings, especially this time of year. Therapy can be the thing to really help you, and BetterHelp makes it so easy by being entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and
1: suited to fit your schedule. I'm someone who has found benefits from therapy since I was a teenager, which is more years ago than I'd like to think of. But for me, therapy isn't a one-size-fits-all, so it's important to find a therapist that's a fit for you. And by filling out the BetterHelp questionnaire, you're able to be matched with a therapist that could work great for you. But if it's not a match, you don't have to worry. You can always switch therapists at any time at no additional cost.
0: Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com
1: slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable, way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites what i really love is how quickly dash pass pays for itself on average it takes just two orders which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget and as if that weren't enough dash pass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience
0: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
1: And now back to the episode.
0: So before the break, we have gone into so many details about the murder of Scott Guy. And at this point in the story, his brother-in-law, Ewan, has been arrested and charged with his murder. But... It is not looking like they have a slam dunk case against Ewan at this point. The big question on everybody's minds is, if Ewan did not kill his brother-in-law Scott, then who did? There were actually a few key suspects that the police did focus their attention on. The farm worker that we earlier referred to as Derek is one such suspect that investigators thought could have potentially had a motive. He did have some animosity towards Scott, and he did arrive unusually early for work that morning. He drove a four-door sedan, and he owned a semi-automatic shotgun, which, again, as we've said, I don't think is that unusual for people in this lifestyle living the farm life, uh, basically. like This comes up a couple times in the story, and will come up again, that there are a lot of shotguns out there, and it's very common to use them in like different farm activities, so If all of these people in the story are kind of, like, involved in farm life, it's likely that you're going to hear that, like, many of them had shotguns.
1: I'd be more surprised if they didn't have shotguns at this point.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So on the day that Scott was shot, Derek called his partner and told her about this shooting. And he said that he heard this news from Matthew, who was the other farm employee that we mentioned earlier. However... Matthew later testified that he himself didn't even find out that Scott had been shot until days later. Investigators learned that Derek had gone on a job interview the day before the shooting, but he actually didn't tell anyone at the farm that he was even doing that. But again, that doesn't surprise me. Most people don't tell their employer that they're looking for other employment. He said that he just didn't plan on being at the Beerburn farm long term so he was actively looking for another job at the time uh, so Derek preferred to work on tractors he didn't like the milking side of the farm business and after Scott was killed Derek did get a promotion uh, to manager and he was given a small pay increase he even commented to someone that the one good thing to come out of Scott's death was that he was back on the tractor where he belonged Derek told the officers that he never owned a pair of Pro-Line dive boots, and he actually wore a size 12. And as we mentioned before, the boot prints that were found at the scene were thought to be a size 9 or a 10.
1: So another potential suspect was a man that we'll call Andy. He was actually given name suppression, so his real name isn't even public. Several hours before Scott was shot, before midnight, Andy was actually involved in a robbery and took the stolen items and traded them for two grams of meth. The same man was also involved in a robbery four days before Scott was killed. Andy said that he was at home at the time of the shooting and that his partner could confirm that. However, she admitted that she actually had a two to 3000 a week meth habit and said she thought Andy got home around 4 a.m. that particular day, but couldn't be sure due to her own impaired state. Andy's partner was a well-known criminal herself. She'd actually been charged with threatening to kill a police officer's family. So one of the more serious charges. So police ended up clearing Andy's partner as a suspect. Andy, however, still looked like a potential suspect. During the robbery just hours before the shooting, he actually stole a pack of Winfield Gold cigarettes, which, if you remember, is the same brand as the empty pack that police found at the scene. So police also questioned whether the unidentified tire tracks at the scene could have come from Andy. So multiple people also reported that Andy owned two 12-gauge shotguns and that he was always using meth and really became aggressive. Lastly, police were interested in an unidentified man who had come looking for Scott about two weeks before his murder. This man was described as being tall and unshaven with dark hair. He actually approached David, who is one of the neighbors, and asked where he could find Scott. David noticed the man had a strong smell of alcohol and cigarettes, and he decided not to disclose Scott's new location to this unidentified person, which, good for you, David, good for you. So the names of all these suspects have been kept confidential as part of the investigation. Due to all the pre-trial publicity that
0: the case received, Ewan's trial was relocated to Wellington, and it began on June 6, 2012, so this is about two years after the murder. Both the media and the public were heavily invested in the trial, with around 100 people waiting in line to secure seats in the gallery in the courtroom. According to the general gossip around town, the public really seemed to believe that Ewan was actually guilty. Prosecutors allege that Ewan had been harassing Scott and Kylie since 2008 due to this ongoing disagreement that Scott and Ewan had over the workload on the farm. Prosecutors said that Ewan had initially tried to drive Scott and Kylie off the property entirely, but when that didn't work, he started plotting Scott's murder. Ewan knew Scott's usual routine, he knew the location of the farm shotgun, and he even owned the same type of dive boots that left the tracks at the scene. The prosecutors claimed that Ewan had shot Scott twice, once in the throat and once when he was on the ground or falling to the ground, And then he fled the scene to hide his vehicle, which was the quad bike or the ATV four wheeler, whatever you want to call it, and to hide the shotgun. Additionally, prosecutors allege that Ewan had killed the three missing puppies and buried them to just simply mislead the investigators into thinking there was something else going on. They asserted that whoever did kill Scott had a personal motive and that they had laid in wait for Scott to emerge that morning. The case against Ewan was purely circumstantial, but attorneys argued that the numerous coincidences in the case were just too significant to write off as meaning nothing. Ewan's defense team worked to dismantle the prosecution's theory piece by piece. The defense admitted that Ewan had vandalized and committed arson at Scott's property, and they agreed that those acts were despicable, but they said that it didn't make him a murderer.
1: There were four specific objections that the defense raised against the prosecution's case. First of all, they said the timeline was inaccurate and implausible. Prosecutors stated that the earliest Scott could have been killed was 443, but multiple witnesses reported hearing the gunshots at 5 a.m., and there were witnesses who saw Ewan at his own farmhouse at that time. Also, witnesses claimed to have heard three shots, which is inconsistent with the prosecution's claim that two shots were fired. Additionally, nothing linked the farm shotgun to the murder. There are thousands of 12-gauge shotguns out there. It really could have been any one of them. The defense had an American shooting champion testify that it would take him seven seconds to fire two shots, reload, and fire a third shot from a double-barreled shotgun like the one the prosecution said Ewan used to kill Scott. Another issue raised by the defense was that two vehicles seen near Scott's property were never identified and the tracks left behind were never matched to any vehicle. They also brought up that there were three possible suspects in the case and that there was no way to say for certain that Ewan was a responsible party. Derek had even stated that Scott had made many people angry, but he denied personally having any ill will towards him. The defense said, quote, There is not simply reasonable doubt in this case, but there is an absolute abundance of it, end quote. Ewan didn't take the stand in his own trial. He had actually already given the police over 40 hours of interview time, and he really felt like he'd said all he had to say. The defense pointed out the lack of physical evidence linking Ewan to the murder. There were not even puppy hairs found on his clothing. There's no evidence the shotgun in the farm office had been moved, really nothing at all. They also alleged that Ewan and Scott had been getting along just fine and that everyone was looking forward to making more money on the farm and that Ewan would really stand to get nothing from killing Scott. He wouldn't get Scott's share of the farm anyway. And without Scott, Ewan would even have more work to do. This thing that they're saying he's so bitter about, now it's just made it worse for him.
0: So after an 11-hour deliberation, the jury ended up finding Ewan not guilty of murdering Scott. While his wife, Anna, broke down in tears of relief, Scott's wife, Kylie, ran from the courtroom screaming, he killed my husband. Scott's dad, Brian, told the media that the family was really glad the trial was over, but that at that time, they still had no idea who really killed his son, and Scott's loss was still deeply mourned by those who loved him. Although the murder trial was over, Ewan did remain in police custody because he was still guilty and had to be sentenced of his other crimes, which were the vandalism that we mentioned and the poaching, the killing of animals on other people's farms, all of that stuff. While prosecutors said they respected the jury's decision in the murder trial, they still felt that Ewan was the only suspect. Word of Ewan's acquittal shocked the community. Most of the people, as we said before, believe that he was guilty. And in fact, a research company even conducted an opinion poll and found that only 20% of the respondents believe the jury got the verdict right. I always... Like, have so many just like gray area questions about these opinion polls that are conducted by like research companies and stuff. Because I've never been asked, I've never been polled about anything. So I'm like, who did they ask? How many people did they really ask? I really want to know more about that. But it is interesting that 20% of people thought he, you know, was not guilty. And apparently 80% of people asked thought that he was. I thought that was interesting. But you
1: need to know more information than just that. Yeah. But have you ever been to the mall and they're like, can I ask you a few questions or whatever? Right. That's the thing. It's oh, yeah. only the people that will stop and talk to them That's that true. are going to get the answer. So if you've got people who are like, I got time to kill. I'll answer it. Well, yeah, there's your control group. It's not yeah. great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not a very good system. So after Ewan was acquitted, the judge in the trial did disclose the details of his other charges, including the killing of those 19 calves, the poaching of the deer, emptying tens of thousands of dollars of milk from a vat, and burning down the duck lodge. In September, Ewan was sentenced to five years for these crimes. At that point, though, he had already served about 17 months. Ewan's wife, Anna, told 60 Minutes that she just really didn't know if the jury made the right decision, but she had come to accept the decision that they made. She said her marriage to Ewan was actually full of secrets and lies. In 2013, Scott's wife, Kylie, sought to have the coroner open an inquest into the murder... But the coroner actually declined to do so because they said they thought the police already found the right person. They thought Ewan was the person responsible and there was no reason to open, you know, any further inquest into this. So Kylie ended up hiring a private investigator named Mike Crawford to try and help her uncover potential new evidence. Mike went through the police files and found that Scott had actually received a number of unidentified calls the day before his death, as well as one unidentified call on the day of his death. Mike sent this phone data that he had acquired to an expert analyst, but unfortunately, the results came back inconclusive. The PI also had the police drain and search two ponds that were on the farm that had apparently never been searched before, but those searches I'm sure despite the massive effort that it was to do that turned up absolutely no new evidence in the case. After 18 months of working with this PI, Kylie ran out of funds to continue paying him. And at that point, they really still hadn't even uncovered anything new to share to the police. So, so she kind of just told him, you know, I don't think that there's anything more you can do for me. However, Mike did continue to work on the case for free Um, in his free time. He kind of did like a little pro bono thing. He said that he believes Scott's case is still solvable and all that's missing is just, you know, one or two key pieces of information that will kind of unlock the rest of the truth.
1: So throughout this whole time, Ewan's been up for parole four different times and he was denied each time. In November of 2015, when he had just six months left of his sentence, he was granted parole with very strict conditions, including the need for electronic monitoring and an order to never speak to any of the victims. At that time, Brian said the family hadn't spoken to Ewan and had no plans to do so upon his release. He said Ewan was not a part of their lives anymore.
0: Doesn't it kind of seem like they changed their opinion a little bit? I feel like at first they were... um kind of saying that they didn't think he could have been responsible for the murder. And now it seems like after the verdict, they've a little bit just changed that kind of distanced themselves from him a little bit more than what they originally did.
1: Well, also I feel like if Kylie, the wife is saying this guy did it, I think it would be hard to go against her and they have grandkids and all this. And even Anna is saying, I don't know what happened. Um, It's not like people are really, standing in his you know right standing on his side so i think that yeah that's that's a lot so ewan ended his parole in 2016 and he soon fell in love with a new woman who he married the following year they settled in christchurch new zealand according to brian and joe ewan has never apologized to the family Although they don't have contact with him anymore, they said they really don't have anything to say to him anyway, and they really struggle to forgive him, but they don't want bitterness and hatred to consume their lives. Ten years after Scott's murder, Ewan's defense attorney said they were convinced the police ignored evidence that pointed to other likely suspects, and they zeroed in on Ewan once they found out about his prior criminal activity. Because of this, Ewan's attorneys don't think the murder will ever be solved, They believe that the man Andy that we talked about before, the guy who uh, was burglarizing Holmes literally the night before um, and was on meth, who was out and about that night, was the most likely suspect. Police are adamant that Andy wasn't the killer, but they've never provided any evidence that proved his innocence. They just said that they don't think Scott's murder was a burglary gone wrong, but they have no explanation for these three missing puppies.
0: I find this part really interesting, actually, because... Melissa, you know, both of us own dogs. Both of us have looked for puppies, and, you know, we kind of have seen like the market that there is for puppies out there. And so the fact that they don't think that it's significant that three puppies were missing from this farm kind of surprises me and that they never found the puppies. Like, that's kind of interesting to me because the puppies were locked up in a shed. I get the impression that breeding puppies and selling puppies was just part of the farm business that they had going on another part of it right so the fact that they thought it wasn't an important piece of information that these puppies were missing kind of did throw me for a loop a little bit
1: And one of our sponsors, like last year, I think Embark, they do like DNA of your pet, right? So it would be interesting if they had ever taken those other dogs, put it in the system, maybe something would come up and, you know, there'd be some connection like, oh, yeah, I got this dog from this guy who was blah, blah, blah. I mean, who knows? Weirder things have happened, that's for sure. So the prosecution told the Otago Daily Times that they wouldn't change anything, and they still believe that Ewan was responsible for the murder. Police have said this case is still open, but it's currently inactive and there are no investigators assigned to the case at this time. They also said that they have not reviewed the entire case file since Ewan was acquitted. They probably won't be reactivating this case without a significant piece of information or new evidence, so if you happen to live in New Zealand and know something that might help, you should contact New Zealand Crime Stoppers at 0800-555-111 or go to crimestoppers-nz.org. Mandy, this is a whirlwind of a story, and I don't know the right answers. I can absolutely, I think, quite honestly... They just did not have, it, it, he was not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I think he was crappy and did a lot of really horrific things, but they could not prove that he was behind this murder. And oh, totally yes, But not agree. this.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't think that Ewan was necessarily like a super great guy, um, no. just based on the poaching and I guess you could say petty things like emptying milk you know, I'm crying. I'm crying over the spilt milk there. But other than that, I don't I just don't know. I I agree. I don't think it's possible that he could have murdered Scott because of the fact that he was seen in a completely different location at around the same time. That part really kind of holds me up. There was multiple people who saw him and that he was reporting for work that morning, ready to milk cows. I don't know that I believe that he could have shot Scott at even at 4.43, which was the earliest that they said, and then been at the shed to milk cows 10 minutes later. That just, to me, doesn't – it just doesn't seem likely.
1: And honestly, even though they had this animosity at certain parts, they were still working together, and it seemed to be going well. And the fact that he ends up having more work after he dies makes me think, well, it's not like – you know, it wasn't for money. What was it really? Right, right. They had already been dealing with this situation for years, so clearly they've been able to figure it out, you know. But right, the exactly fact that his, his wife kind of stepped away from it and the family. I, I don't wanna say I mean, he was acquitted, so there's that, but I think the police may have uh missed something and not yeah. looking at other leads um and only focusing on yeah on you and I agree. And
0: I do like I I think that the missing puppies are significant. Puppies are um, a valuable, I guess you could say, asset or resource. I think that that probably was more important than what the police, you know, kind kind of led led on to be. You know, who knows? Who knows what happened in this case? It's really, really sad. I just, I don't know. I agree that I don't think that they had enough to... um, Convict Ewan of the murder, though. I do yeah. think he had – his alibi maybe wasn't, like, super rock solid, but I think there was enough there that kind of proved that he could not have been in two places at one time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It's – I don't know. I feel terrible for the family because I can't – that just divides – not only are you dealing with a murder, your entire family's divided. You know, people if, – if he's not guilty of this, he has – nothing he lost everything everything. yeah exactly
0: all right guys so that was the episode for this week thank you guys so much for listening this was a little bit of a longer story Uh, i think this was probably one of the craziest ones i know i said in the beginning that we um don't often do cases from out of the country but every time we do it's always like the craziest story so again and we're no happy to we here. just yeah. sometimes
1: it's hard to get more information so yeah it is i know it's like
0: a little bit more di- and Haley does such a great job researching um of course finding information that i feel like most people would have a hard time finding so right uh yeah so thank you so much for that Haley. anyway melissa before yes. we get out of here mm-hmm. this is our final episode um before Thanksgiving, well, oh I my god, final. the way you Why said that say, was <laughs> final. This is our final episode. Um, no, this is our last episode before we have. We a have little one break week off for Andy. the Thanksgiving. We have one holiday. week off. Yeah, just a little break, just one week off for Thanksgiving, which we do every year. So, if you're a new listener, I'm so sorry, there will be no new episode next week. If you're an old listener. Happy Thanksgiving. There will be no new episode next week.
1: <laughs> we are replaying an episode that people really got a lot of out of this year, and there's going to be some extra information in there, so you yes. do want to check it out. Yes, of course. Um. So, yeah. So we will have
0: something dropping in your feed next week. Before we get out of here, Melissa, last thing before yeah. we go. I feel like we haven't even done last thing before we go for a couple of weeks because we've had stories where last thing before we go was not necessarily top priority.
1: So – true i'm excited to do last thing before we go this week okay so i've just got some thanksgiving uh questions and answers uh you get to answer and good luck to you okay, so cool. true or false mandy <laughs> the day after thanksgiving is the busiest day of the year for plumbers for
0: plumbers
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm gonna say true because it seems like a fun fact that just has to be true it's absolutely true. Think about that. All the people eating all that food. Yeah. It's got to go somewhere. in their toilets. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. has to be all the men because
1: girls don't poop. So. Okay. I got something to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off mic. <laughs> Please tell me off mic. <laughs> okay. Mandy, next question. How many turkey-related questions does the Butterball Hotline answer? 25,000, 50,000, 100,000.
0: Hold on. Is this like where you call in on Thanksgiving Day and say like, oh, Problem solve yeah. my turkey crisis. Yeah,
1: it, it's definitely a troubleshooting. Number. Oh my! Twenty five, fifty, hundred thousand. I didn't even 000. know that
0: existed. I need to utilize that. Okay, I'm gonna say. Wait, what are the choices? Twenty five, fifty, or how
1: many? A 50000 a hundred thousand. Stop. Good luck. Good luck gosh, getting your question.
0: Come on, guys. From. It's not that hard uh-huh. to cook a turkey.
1: Yeah. Well, I've never even tried. I've never even done it in forty years. I've, never I've done it in multiple turkey. ways and. Not all
0: of them have turned out great,
1: but, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a ham girl, so it's not going to happen. Okay, Mandy, cranberry sauce is the most hated Thanksgiving food. True or false?
0: I don't know if I would say most hated, but I would agree that it's the most
1: controversial. True. It's actually, according to a 2022 article in a magazine I did not write down, it was voted the most hated. And that's haters. tough for both of us. Yeah, yeah, haters.
0: Now, well, you know, we always talk about the difference that we have. So Melissa, you are a, a, a snap and plop kind of girl. You like to hear I'm the- I'm team ridges and slop. Yeah, yeah. You like to hear the, d I'm not, I can't even make the sound, as it comes out of the can. I like to go all fancy and dump a bag of cranberries into the pot with brown sugar and make it, it's really not even hard, but it's so delicious to just make your own.
1: It it's, smells good, but it's not better than jellied. And I will <laughs> never, I will die on this hill, and I'm fine with that. It's it's what should be remembered about me is it's my fine. true. Love. I know yeah. it
0: is fine. It's totally fine. You're like the canned, canned, the canned cran crew. I need to make a design for canned our, our merchandise for you. This just like Melissa's canned, can, canned cran
1: crew. <laughs> I mean, and you everybody who's you with you can it. buy the T-shirt. There <laughs> you go. Let's do it. Okay, Mandy. Two more questions. Uh, more people travel to what city than any other for Thanksgiving? New York, Orlando, Chicago, LA. This is definitely not Orlando. Please tell me it's not Orlando. <laughs> What's your guess? New York. It's Orlando. No, I was so disappointed. Too. Why do they come here? Disney. The answer is always it Disney, say and why. I always. I always forget how like Disney Orlando is until people like Haley flew in a few weeks ago or a few days ago, actually. And she was like, there was kids on my flight. There's so many. And I always forget that's like a thing that people have to deal with.
0: I've actually heard that. I see that even like on Reddit when I like read Reddit posts, people who Uh are coming to Orlando, they'll like post about their travels or whatever. And everybody says that they're like, oh, flights to Orlando are the worst because they're full of kids.
1: I never even notice. It's a
0: crazy thing. When you're a parent, mm-hmm. you don't notice, right? Like, that's really know. only a thing that those living a child-free lifestyle would notice, not yeah. those of us that have children.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's mostly me just looking at them being like, if they cry, I'll be fine. It's okay. I yeah. get it. Like, well, me
0: too. I know. Well, I'm here and for And I have headphones. And like, that's, yeah. oh my gosh, don't let me start ranting about planes. Okay, next plants.
1: question. <laughs> <And> final question. <laughs> Maybe bring,
0: bring your headphones people. Don't complain headphones. about other people's kids. Just bring your exactly.
1: headphones. <laughs> okay. So, last question. What is the main ingredient in traditional green bean casserole? Is it It's canned cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> what on earth? I that upsets me so much. Why cuz it's correct? Yeah, no, no, no. I don't care. I'm good for you. I'm like proud of you. The idea of cream of mushroom soup. Oh my gosh. I hate casserole, so I I can't
0: do it. I have always fancied myself a decent cook, right? Like I've always thought that I know how to cook. I can cook well. Everything I cook tastes great. But I've always made my Thanksgiving uh, green bean casserole with cream of mushroom soup. And then probably like five or six years ago, I came across this like post on Reddit. (laughs) Of course, Reddit, obviously, (laughs) where else would it be? And it was talking about like the ways people like screw up like really good food and everything. Uh And one of the things I read, one of the comments I read was making green bean casserole with cream of mushroom soup. And I'm like, (gasps) how else do you do it? Right. So then I like realized in that moment that I'm actually kind of like cooking ignorant because i was like how would i make it if i didn't use a can of cream what's the answer well they use like heavy they make their they essentially make their own version of cream of mushroom soup Mm -hmm. right like they still put Mm -hmm. mushrooms in it but they make like a roux and they make their own like bechamel sauce to go with like the in place in place of the cream of mushroom soup apparently i'm not Mm -hmm. that good of a cook cream of mushrooms, no, all it's the way through.
1: it's the no. number one
0: ingredient for a reason number
1: one <laughs> the main ingredient i was like i was upset it wasn't green beans which yeah. i'm already mad about because i hate casserole okay so that's all the questions i have you did quite well you did quite well minus that this time, please don't let it be orlando do quite well but it's all right it's always fun i did this time
0: all right guys thank you so much for listening we will be back next week well no, we won't. We'll be back the week after next. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week, and we'll see you back
1: on the 28th. Bye. Bye.